Hi, Press Gallery listeners. This is Sarah O'Donnell filling in this week once again for Emma Graney. This is just a reminder to subscribe to our beloved podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you could leave us a rating and a review, that would really help out. We love hearing from you all. Enjoy this week's episode. Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. It's February 1st, 2019, and this is the Capping It Off edition. And with me in the studio, I have provincial affairs reporter Claire Clancy. Good morning, Claire. Good morning. I had a very harrowing walk to work this morning in the snow. Oh, well, we're very happy that you made it safe and sound with all all your limbs intact. And uh, also with me in the studio, Dave Breckenridge, a managing editor and host of the Post Media's 10.3 podcast. How's it going? Going very well, thank you. And joining us from Calgary, we have business columnist Chris Varco, who is going to help fill us in on many, many, many oil-related matters this week that really dominated Alberta politics, I would say. Um, So the three topics we want to tackle, we want to tackle the big Supreme Court decision related to orphan wells and what's required for companies reclaiming things. We're going to talk about the latest uh, developments in oil curtailment. And we also want to just go back, you know, maybe almost a week ago now in time and talk about the carbon tax and uh, how that is going to continue to be a campaign issue, uh, but where it also might has been catching uh, candidates up in a a story or two. So why don't we start with the, the most recent development, and I think one that might have the longest term implications for Alberta in terms of environmental uh, issues, and that is a Supreme Court decision. Claire, Chris, one of you guys, fill our readers, readers. (laughs) (laughs) Claire, Chris, can you guys fill our listeners in on what exactly happened? Yeah, sure. I can give kind of the basics of, of what this decision means. So the Supreme Court of Canada came down uh, overturning a previous decision made by the Alberta Court of Appeal that basically means bankrupt energy companies can't walk away from abandoned uh, or uh, like no, no longer useful oil wells in the province. It means that these energy companies will have to now prioritize environmental cleanup as opposed to uh, paying back creditors. And it stems from the Redwater Energy case, which we've covered you know, since 2016. It's been a very long ongoing issue and now does set a precedent for uh, kind of how energy companies will interact with landowners who are concerned about these orphan wells on their properties. Chris, how surprised were you by this particular ruling? This was a different... Uh verdict or decision than the previous courts had had made. No, I wasn't that surprised. And, and the reason I'll say that is because there was a dissenting uh, votes in the Alberta Court of Appeal when they went through this uh, case back in 2017. I mean, really, the case itself was was a, a technical battle between uh, the trustee. In this case, there was, so there was a bankrupt company. Its assets were being liquidated. And the question was, could the company just sell off the good assets and dump all of the bad assets, these lousy oil and gas wells that needed to be cleaned up, into the lap of the Orphan Well Association, into the lap, basically, of industry to have to pick up the costs. So it always kind of seemed manifestly unfair, at least in my mind, that you would be able to have creditors, secured creditors, secured lenders, be able to take priority over the, you know, the, the just regulations that the province was trying to do in forcing companies 
and whoever took over these these wells to clean up the liabilities. So I think it was a, a sensible decision. I think it was one that many people were hoping for and expecting. But I think there's also other implications beyond just bankrupt companies and bankrupt wells. So right now in this province, we have what we call orphan wells. Those are wells that nobody owns that, that basically have to be cleaned up by the rest of the industry. And those are maybe two or 3,000 right now, which is up a lot from where we were five years ago before the oil price downturn. But the bigger question is there's 89,000 suspended wells. These are inactive wells which are owned by companies but just have not been producing. And some of them haven't been producing for six decades. And the question is, who's going to clean them up? And is the government going to step in and force companies to make them clean up at some point? And I thought what was interesting about this is I actually spoke yesterday to Al Khmer, who's the president of the um, Rural Municipalities of Alberta Association, and a lot of his members have talked about this issue at past conventions. And yesterday, Al was telling me that their board had a discussion after the Supreme Court decision where they are torn about it because they're concerned that this could potentially cause issues with investment from oil and gas. Um, are companies going to want to invest in a sector that is already struggling when there are going to be these kind of new expectations potentially. And I think it's a fair question that we don't really know the answer yet to. I have a hard time getting over the the argument about investment. And I'm the kind of guy who really wants to see companies invest in Alberta and I want to see an environment in place where companies are encouraged to do that. But on the flip side, when you're talking about getting into oil production, you have to carry some of that risk. And some of that risk is having to clean up after yourselves. And if you're coming in to make profit off our resources, you should bear that responsibility. And industry needs to sort itself out and figure out the best way to, to deal with that, really. It shouldn't be on the public to clean up after business. It really shouldn't. Absolutely, Dave. I couldn't agree more. And I think the, there's a couple of other telling things. Is the Redwater decision really changed the landscape in 2016 or 2017? So really, all the Supreme Court decision is doing is putting us back to where we were two or three years ago. So I don't think it really changes the dynamics that fundamentally for oil and gas companies to raise money. That's the first point. The other point is here is that, by and large, the industry itself uh, was behind this decision. They wanted to see it happen because all the good players in the industry have to pay a levy to the Orphan Well Fund to pick up for all of the inactions of the bad companies which have dumped these wells into their lap. So the fact that the industry itself is behind the ruling we saw in Redwater, I think, speaks volumes. One of the issues that has come up through all of this in, in, in what I've been reading is that companies do not have a required timeline in terms of a cleanup. Am I, am I correct on that? Yes. So I was surprised when I thought about that seemed to me like something that an NDP government would have certainly been interested in looking at or dealing with when they came in. It, it is shocking to me that that Wells could sit unremediated for decades and people I mean, these are and this matters because these are th things that are on people's land. They have to they have to allow them on and then they're just left sitting there. Why has no government in Alberta been willing to put a timeline on these cleanups? And is this something that would be big enough to become an election issue, do any of you think? I don't know whether it's big enough to become an election issue, to be honest with you, because this only speaks to a, you know, a small section of the population who will be interested. 
the reason why it hasn't been tackled, I think, speaks to the fact that, and, and even the Minister of Energy, Mark McQuaid-Boyd, said this yesterday, is that for decades in this province, the government was more concerned about extracting the rent, in other words, getting the royalties for the wells, rather than worrying about when the wells would be cleaned up. And you're absolutely right. This seems like an issue that the NDC should be moving on. She claims that the government, you know, is talking right now with industry and they will be bringing down tougher rules in the in the very near future. I asked her, does that mean will that happen before the election? And we didn't get a very clear response. I don't think it'll be a huge issue uh, for the election. The NDP have other files, uh, especially around energy, that they want to deal with. Um, market access, the price of oil. We're going to talk about curtailment in a little bit. I think that those are kind of some of the issues that the Notley government wants to deal with uh, in the forefront. Whether the government is working on this issue in the background, I don't know if it'll be a huge election issue. Okay. Well, since we've kind of slowly been easing our way over to the curtailment question anyways, let's let's move right to that. Um, so all the oil that we have been uh, attempting to get out of the ground in wells and in various other formats, uh, there there had been a, a slowdown on uh, letting some of that through the pipelines. That, ch- that uh, changed a little bit this week. Claire, what was the update? Yeah, so basically um, the provincial government has increased their production limit for oil by about 75,000 barrels per day. It's a slight increase, um, but what it means is that it's the first kind of sign of easing the curtailment order that started January 1st um, that aimed to uh, draw down that 35 million barrels of oil in storage. So right now, uh, the government has reported that 5 million of those barrels is now has been shipped out, and there are about 30 million left. Obviously, this is not the end of curtailment. It will continue for some time. But uh, the government, you know, did kind of send out a good news press release saying curtailment's working and now we can up the production limit slightly. What's interesting is that this came the same week that uh, there have been some companies raising issues about the curtailment policy, uh, in particular CNRL, sent out a letter to su- to suppliers saying that they were potentially going to have to consider job cuts in northeast Alberta. Um, this has caused a lot of debate because the government has said, you know, CNRL was in favor of the curtailment policy and CNRL says that it actually changed in December uh, to use a formula based on an oil company's best month of production over the last 12 months, as opposed to the average of six months, which was kind of what was announced initially when Rachel Notley had her big news conference in December. So that's also been kind of a point of contention here with how curtailment is is playing out. But um, yeah, but we'll see, I guess, how long it lasts for. Is it true that curtailment has been working in terms of having an impact on the actual price? I think there's a lot of debate around that issue, and Chris can probably speak more to this because I think he's been in touch with companies kind of more closely than I have. But there's a, there's a lot of debate around kind of whether the market was correcting itself to begin with, or if um, if if curtailment has had this huge issue. I think definitely we saw right after curtailment came into effect January first that uh, you know that differential did close a great deal. Um, some people say that was just a market reaction, but you know, now the government's saying we are drawing down those storage levels. 
Chris, you you were on a call this morning where this came up as a topic of conversation. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, this morning, Imperial Oil uh, had their fourth quarter earnings call, and, and their CEO, Rich Kruger, spoke a lot about curtailment. Now, just a bit of background. Imperial is the largest refiner, uh, the largest downstream company in the country. Uh, they have been adamantly opposed to what they think is a uh, intervention in a free market of energy, a manipulation of the price by the government, and they don't like it. And uh, obviously, it doesn't help their business. But what was interesting was was two things that points that uh, Mr. Kruger made today. Number one is they think that because the differential has fallen so greatly, it has fallen from maybe thirty or forty dollars a barrel down into single dollars, uh, single digits rather. Um, that is having a negative impact. And what it is doing is it is making it uneconomic for companies like Imperial and others to put their barrels on rail and try and get them down to the U.S. Gulf Coast. Now, just to give you a little bit of a backdrop here, is it normally costs maybe $14 to $18, $15 to move a barrel from Hardesty by rail all the way down to the U.S. Gulf Coast refineries. So if your differential in the marketplace, what the, what the crude is selling for is only 6 or $7. There is no financial incentive to move those barrels on rail, which actually is moving in the counter direction of what the government's intention is, which is they want to try and balance supply and demand. But if fewer barrels are moving down into the U.S., that's having a negative unintended consequence. That's the number one point. The number two point, and this is maybe a little more ominous, is he said, look, this is a company in, in Imperial which is now moving forward on its Aspen oil sands project. I believe it's a $2 billion project. Uh, you know, that is an innovative oil sands development. And it's one of the first new ones that has moved forward since the price crash. Now, he didn't say they were going to cancel it because of curtailment, but he definitely said they're going to reevaluate the market conditions around it. And, you know, if you're sitting in government, you have to be wondering, well, what is curtailment going to do to new investment? This might be an example. So I think that's the kind of talk that's going to get people's attention, that sure, the market price has responded and things seem to be going well for curtailment, but unintended consequences, whether it's you know, what it's doing to rail or what it's going to do to Canadian natural resources, what we're seeing up in, in the Bonneville area, is it hard to, it's hard to know. When you move the dial, it doesn't always go in the direction you want to go and the outcome. I did want to ask Chris, actually, if do you feel like the tide has turned against the government in terms of curtailment policy? Because, you know, in December, this was everyone kind of came out in support of the idea of curtailment. And now we're starting to see companies, uh, I mean, obviously, the industry was divided. But now I think more so, at least from my perspective, I'm starting to see more criticisms of what this curtailment policy is doing. I still think there's majority support. And I think you'll see that as companies come forward in the next few weeks and talk about their uh, their fourth quarter earnings, is this will have a manifestly positive impact upon companies' cash flow. You know, if you're an oil producer, uh, you're definitely benefiting from seeing the differential. A heavy oil producer is benefiting from seeing the differential at $7, then $47. And that's going to help. So I think by and large, most of the industry still supports it. But what you are seeing is this isn't a simple thing to do to intervene in the market. And there will be unintended consequences and there will be losers as well as winners. Yeah, and I think that it's one of those situations where the the government had to, to expect that it wasn't going to go perfectly, but they were in a position where they had to do something. And I think, you know... We all know had there been another government in power in Alberta, we still would have seen this move get made. All the political parties were talking about this. And while a company like Imperial Oil wants to lay some of this at Rachel Notley's feet, 
at the end of the day, I think that she had all the political cover she needed to do it. And, you know, had she not done anything, I think would have been worse for her politically speaking. If you're Rachel Notley, though, and, and the NDP government, do you get end this policy? Do you end the curtailment before you call the election? Or do you go into the election leaving that uh, tightening in place? Politically speaking, you may end it because there's... You don't want to be seen as trying to meddle in the market once you're in an election campaign. And if things were to take a turn in the wrong direction, um, you could wind up in some in a bad place politically. But I don't know. It's that's just speculation on my part. Really. Yeah. No, I don't have. What do you think, Chris? Well, I think there's there's two things you're looking at. One is the politics and one is the economics. And I think the economics are going to dictate that you probably wouldn't get rid of curtailment that quickly. That, yeah, you might draw down those storage levels a little bit faster than what you're expecting right now, but you need them to come down significantly because we have such a huge overhang in terms of production versus takeaway capacity. So if you got rid of curtailment, say, at the end of March, you would just fill those storage levels right back up and we'd be right back to where we were in the fall as compared to where we were back in October and November of last year. So the economics, I think, would say you probably don't uh, do that till you get towards the end of the year and line three, the Enbridge replacement project gets built. Politically, though, it, there may be an advantage to try and turn the dial down or maybe turn it off. Well, that's going to be an interesting question to watch. And I, I wonder if as we that's another potential signal, I guess, as we get you know further into uh, the winter and spring as to whether that is a sign that maybe we are getting closer and closer to that election call. Um, let's move just to our last topic here, because I think we've done a pretty good job covering the first two. Which we could talk about for hours. Oh, and that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. We could, we really could okay. go on about all of every single one of these topics today could have been a whole show in itself. But, you know, one of the part we've been talking about, the NDP policies, and certainly one of the things that the United Conservative Party hopes to hit them on hard in the election has been the carbon tax. And uh, they were trying to, uh, one of the candidates was trying to make a, a point about that in the, on the weekend. And how'd that go, Claire? Yeah, this was such a interesting story to cover. Um, so on Sunday, UCP candidate for Brooks Medicine Hat, Michaela Glasgow, sent out a tweet after her church service saying that, um, you know, unbelievable, my church basically is expecting a carbon tax bill of $50,000. And the reaction on Twitter was fairly swift of people saying that is unbelievable. That seems like a very unrealistic number. And um, UCP leader Jason Kenney started being criticized because he actually retweeted it with the note, with the added note. We hear these kinds of we hear stories like this all the time, sadly. And it's become it became a super interesting issue on I think Monday and Tuesday because on early early Monday, Michaela Glasgow doubled down on that fact um, with a Facebook post saying. You know, my church is it's a large institution and they are expecting a bill of fifty thousand dollars. And then later in the day, she said, oh, I actually have spoken to my church and clarified and it's five thousand four hundred dollars. And then what was even more interesting, and I I think everyone loves a little bit of irony, as I do, mm -hmm. um, is that when I interviewed the pastor for that church in Medicine Hat, Steve Paul, he said, Actually, a lot of the congregation is in support of the carbon tax. They are concerned about environmental issues. And he said, we're happy to pay our bills. So it was a very interesting kind of little political issue that had a few twists and turns throughout the day. Um, 
But what it really did was raise this question of what responsibility political leaders have when they're uh, retweeting information or retweeting facts um, that are coming from their own internal candidates. And the UCP's response to this was that the tweets were in good faith and, you know, and that they once they had the the record corrected they did retweet that information as well and you know that it's just caused a big back and forth in Alberta politics i don't know i don't know if that's a good enough excuse that it was in good faith you'd expect that uh, a political leader as smart and savvy as jason kenny might have his radar up and think that seems really high of course he obviously doesn't know the church and what kind of massive compound it may or may not operate down uh, in Michaela Glasgow's uh, hometown. But at the same time, it just seemed kind of far-fetched. Did we make too much out of it, though? I, I, I certainly I know that some people were accusing the media of that, that we were just trying to make a mountain out of a molehill pointing out this error. I Well, again, I think that if if the party is being critical of the carbon tax and the, and the party wants to make that a big election issue, if, they're, if one of their candidates is torquing numbers intentionally or unintentionally if she misheard fine and she corrected the record and good honor for correcting the record one thing that i was surprised she didn't do is delete her earlier tweet if you look if you compare the two tweets and i had someone who pointed this out on twitter the tweet talking about the fifty thousand dollars had several hundred retweets and likes and the tweet correcting the record had i don't know 50 or something like that it would have made sense to to delete the incorrect tweet and point out the fact that she had deleted the incorrect tweet and then correct the record for her followers. I think it's, again, did we make a mountain out of a molehill? I don't know. I don't recall putting it on the front page of any newspapers, um, but it was worth pointing out if if they're going to criticize the carbon tax and they say they're going to repeal the carbon tax and they want to make it a big election issue, if they get something wrong by that order of magnitude, it's fair ball for the media to point it out. It's definitely a news story. I agree. But I don't think this is going to change anyone's opinion on the carbon tax. Those who are against it are still just as against it. And those who are in favor of it are still just in favor of it. I think the one thing it does show you, though, is that the instant reaction from all sides to this shows you that we're on the precipice of an election and we're, uh, we're already in that, that red zone. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying, Chris, because I mean, to some people, an increase is an increase, whether it's a $5,000 increase or a $50,000 increase, that church is still paying more. I definitely, you know, if if I, I was fascinated by Jason Kenney saying, we're hearing stories like this all the time, because I want to, I mean, as an editor, I was like, well, no one's telling me about that. So if there are any institutions facing massive, massive bills like that, I do hope they let us know because we we ought to know. And yeah, I think Dave's point is an important one, which is that the reason why this became so interesting for everybody is that for months or for years, you know, the um, conservatives and the UCP have been railing against this carbon tax. It's in every political speech. It is going to be a massive campaign point. So the information that's being put out there about that on both sides should be accurate. Well, and I'm, I mean, I know, and I am fascinated to know, you know, exactly what in the last couple of years, I would like to know, you know, what has this carbon tax gone for? I think that's really important for Albertans to know and understand going into this election. How has that revenue been spent? And what, if anything, has it done to 
lower greenhouse gas emissions. So I'm really hoping that we can get some answers on those questions soon. Definitely. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we are almost out of time here. So why don't we just wind up and uh, we'll have a quick round of good stuff from the gallery. Dave, why don't you start us off? All right. My good stuff, uh, like last week, I believe it was, I pointed to a piece that I used as a source material for my 10-3 podcast. I, I would encourage everyone to listen to that. But um, the Windsor, as we all did last week. <laughs> the Windsor Star and the London Free Press have teamed up on a series. They've titled it Exit Wounds. It's a look at uh, the f- lingering effects that trauma on the job can have for first responders. It has a local focus, but I know that this has become a broader issue uh, nationally. Uh, first responders suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and even going to the point of taking their own lives. Um, the first part uh, is a very uh, grim and heart-wrenching piece about a longtime uh, forensics officer and the head of the major crimes unit in Windsor and how trauma on the job ultimately ended his career and and how he dealt with it it's a very good read and very sobering uh storytelling excellent um on chris's behalf i want to recommend his columns his all of his columns this week have been tremendous and puts a a whole range of issues into context from the uh, orphan the abandoned well issues and cleaning those up to the piece on the work camps now he and i have a different opinion on that fort mcmurray uh decision which is which actually could have been a press gallery topic in itself the municipality of wood buffalo looking at a uh putting a moratorium on work camps within now a 75 kilometer radius of uh, Wood Buffalo. It's a fascinating issue. I could debate it more with you, Chris, but we won't, we won't force the readers. To, <laughs> we won't, we won't force listeners to go through that right now. Um, as someone from Fort McMurray, I see the value potentially in it. But anyways, again, what I actually really want to recommend though, is um, the, I'm sure that many people who listen to the Press Gallery also do listen to the New York Times Daily podcast, but I've thought the last two episodes, the episode from Friday today and the episode from Thursday, were particularly interesting. The episode Thursday looked at the issue that's been going on with the critique of BuzzFeed's reporting of President Trump and uh, the, the special counsel investigation and what, where, how he may or may not be implicated and looked at it through the lens of Woodward and Bernstein's reporting on Watergate and how when they made an error in one of their stories, it had the potential to derail all of their other good reporting and and how in the long run, you know, the vast majority and we now, you know, is is held up as as uh, heroic reporting, even though they talked to Bob Woodward about the one one of the mistakes that they made. So that was really interesting from a politics and a journalism perspective. And then in today's piece, they had an on-the-record interview with uh, Donald Trump. Their publisher was invited and uh, some of their White House reporters. So really, really good po- couple podcast episodes. Claire. I, 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 um, I'm going to recommend. I didn't mean to. I sound like I'm ordering you there. Sorry. No, I'm going to recommend an episode of one of my favorite podcasts called Radio Lab. I've interviewed, I mean, I've recommended episodes from it before, but this one honestly was just, it's such a nice respite from everything going on in the news. But I actually, it made me cry because it was like such a great podcast about hockey and just like so interesting. Um, It's called Punch the Punchline. And it's about the story of John Scott, who was the um, NHL player who got voted in by fans to go to the All-Star game. But it started as a joke and then turns into just this really awesome story that uh, I just 
like was yeah it's just so good so I'm gonna recommend that episode wonderful thanks Claire and Chris I wasn't gonna put you on a spot with the good stuff today but do you need a rebuttal on the work camp question I feel like I've <laughs> not let you get your say there I, I, I don't since since you were kind enough to appoint people to come online and read my columns I will not rebut any of your points but I would also just follow up if we're gonna talk about um, all the president's men it's one of my favorite books I've got a paperback copy sitting uh, in my bookcase somewhere if you want to look at echoes from that to the Mueller investigation and what's going on in the United States right now, I, I always recommend that book. Wonderful. Thank you, Dave, Claire, and Chris for coming in today and talking to us about all these issues. And thank you to our producer, Carson Jarema, for editing this and uh, getting it out into the world for everybody to listen to. We will be back next week in the press gallery. I wonder if we'll be in election mode quite yet. We'll see. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>